Our dear Heavenly Father, compassion is one of the qualities of your heart that you reveal to us. And one of the ways you express compassion is by seeking and saving that which was lost. I pray that where we need it, your spirit would compel us uh, to seek for your compassion in our lives. Then I pray that your spirit would compel us to have that same attitude towards those on the outside. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Going back a little bit to um, science class, or when we were younger, did anyone have a chance to play with magnets? at all. Okay, so one of the fun things about magnets is that when you have two magnets, uh, there's a North Pole and a South Pole. The North Pole magnets are attracted to South Pole magnets, and the South Pole magnets are attracted to North Pole magnets. It's why things stick together, it's why you have those uh, fun little reactions when they're yay far apart and they're strong enough, they just snap straight together. But, if you try to put two North Pole magnets together, they have the opposite effect. They repel each other. There's a tension that exists between a North Pole and a North Pole and a South Pole and a South Pole that when you try to put them together, they just force each other away. And it's very interesting because that tension makes it very difficult for those two things to coexist. And in the same kind of way, what we're going to see today is that um, when we think about that kind of repulsive tension, that's where Jesus finds himself right now. We learn from the Gospels that wherever Jesus, uh, news of Jesus spread, people would flock to him from all over. They wanted to hear him preach, they wanted to hear him teach, and they wanted to know what it was he was going to say. But very frequently, uh, whether it was for themselves or whether it was for someone else, very different people would gather around him. And in, in this specific circumstance, uh, we find that the crowd that's surrounding Jesus at this moment is not your run-of-the-mill people. They're not the people you would expect to see hanging around a moral teacher. Luke tells us in... Uh, the 15th chapter of his gospel, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. In, this, in these two sentences, in these two verses, Luke gives us a description of the tension that existed between these two groups. First of all, in the first category, to be a tax collector meant that you would gather all the taxes, all the payments that were meant to be given to Rome at the proper time. Notoriously, though, tax collectors also took more than their fair share. If Rome required them to take $100, it wasn't uncommon for them to take $120 and keep the difference for themselves. Done that way, it was a lucrative but also immoral job that made you a national traitor in the eyes of your relatives and your family. On top of that, there was another group of people categorized by their self-destructive behavior. 
They were simply labeled sinners. People who didn't amount to much morally. Or people who didn't uh, strictly follow the laws and the rules and regulations of the day. Compared to them, you have the Pharisees and the scribes who looked to be religious saints. They were the picture of a perfect life with God on the outside. They went to church every Sunday. They helped train people to teach on church at Sundays. They themselves would lead people and tell people what was right and what was wrong. They were, in every sense of the word, on the outside, the model students. Now, what happens when you put these two groups together is there is that repelling tension. There is something about the Pharisees in themselves and the scribes that did not like people, that wanted to stay away from people who they viewed to be morally inferior, henceforth the sinners. However, both the sinners and the religious elites, the Pharisees and the scribes, didn't care much for the tax collectors because they saw them as traitors to their nation. So in this little group, you have a lot of repelling tension. One group does not like the other group. The other group doesn't like the former group. And the tension is compounded when we see how they treat Christ. The Pharisees and the scribes start grumbling against Christ and saying, this dude is just listening, receiving the sinners and the tax collectors of the day. And it's in this tension built here that paves the way for one of Jesus' most famous parables. It is most important to know that this story is not for us to point the finger at people around us, or even at the Pharisees of the day, or the sinners of the day, or anyone else we're going to read about. It is meant to be a mirror for us to look and say, where do I see myself in this story? And if we will look at it this way, we will learn something of what the heart of Christ looks like for both groups. The first person that Jesus starts telling us about in this parable is a distant son who shows contempt. And Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And so the father divided the property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had. And he journeyed into a far country. And there he squandered his wealth in reckless living. Few things can compare to the pain-making contempt that this younger son shows. We aren't told of any backstory about why the son would be at odds with the father. Uh, we can guess, we can make assumptions. All we know is that there is an emotional distance between them. And in this distance, he showed contempt for his father by asking for his cut of the inheritance. Inheritances come both then and now when people pass away. 
before people pass away, the inheritance belongs to the possessor. What this son is saying to his father is that I'm tired of waiting for you to bite the dust. I'm tired of living with you. I'm tired of waiting for you to bite the dust. Give me what I am going to get, and I'm out of here. It'll be better for the both of us. He shows contempt for his father. But he also shows contempt for the father's presence. We'll see this a little bit later. But the father made sure that this son lacked nothing growing up. Everything that he needed, he could have had in the presence of his father. And yet, for some reason, he found it compelling to leave behind his father and go somewhere far away. And if that wasn't enough, he shows contempt for his father's wealth. The very thing that his father was doing was saving up for his sons so that at the proper time he could give them something so they would be able to make a living for themselves. And yet the son shows contempt in that he takes what belongs to his father, what would eventually come to him, before its proper time, and he takes it and he spends it in reckless and selfish living. All right. If the story isn't here for us to point the finger, we have to ask ourselves, where might we see ourselves? The reason that Jesus is telling this parable is because the Pharisees started grumbling against him. So it's very fair to assume from the outset that this father represents a different kind of father, a more heavenly father, even Christ himself. And maybe this story is showing something about where we either once found ourselves or do find ourselves right now. In the presence of God, there is an abundance of goodness that is able to satisfy our souls. And yet, one of the sad truths is, it is easy to take that for granted, to show contempt for the good things that God has given us, and to say, God, it's great and all what you've done for me, but I, I'm done here. I want to go and I want to figure out how I can live my life the way that I want. If that's where you find yourselves today, I encourage you to keep identifying with this son because there are going to be twists and turns in his journey. And what this does is shows us a way forward, which ends up being a way backwards. And there's an old saying that I've heard before that goes, you don't always know what you have until you don't have it anymore. Paraphrasing a little bit, but the idea is there. You don't know how good you have it, until you don't have it anymore. And that's where the son finds himself. He finds himself in desperate need. And when he had spent everything that his father had worked so hard to save up for him, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. While he was in the presence of the father, 
things were going well. He steps out of the father's presence, shows contempt for what his father gave him, and things start to turn south. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be filled with the pods that he, the pigs ate, and yet no one gave him anything. When life was flowing smoothly in this distant country, the son enjoyed himself to the fullest of his ability. And yet as soon as disaster strikes, he lost any sense of security, any sense of well-being, anything that would have kept him safe because he spent it in reckless living. He could no longer win his favor with the people around him. At one point, it was enough to be able to spend some money to get whatever he wanted to satisfy himself, to feel like he belonged, like he had a meaning in life. And yet once his ability to purchase this meaning ran out, he lost himself. He did have enough sense uh, and good luck to find somebody who was willing to hire him, even in the middle of a, natu of a uh, natural disaster. But whether the employer realized it or not, he gave what the younger son would have seen as a degrading job. Jesus was Jewish. He was speaking to a Jewish community. And one of the most degrading jobs that they could imagine was feeding and sh uh, shepherding pigs. What this is showing is, uh, Jesus is trying to show, is the descent to which the son finds himself outside of the presence of his father. Things were going well for a little bit, but when disaster strikes, he has to hire himself to someone else. And that person who hires him doesn't show any dignity to the son, but sends him into the field to feed pigs. And what's even worse than this, as he longed for the food that he fed the pigs, no one gave him anything. There can be a promise that, there can be a, a lifestyle that looks promising from the outside. This son thought what he needed was to be freed from his father so he could be free to live in the way that made sense to him. He was able to do what he wanted, when he wanted, and yet the promise of this lifestyle failed to deliver. And in a similar way, what we will find out is that these lifestyles that we chase, when we say, I will finally find myself, I will finally find what makes me happy if I'm able to do this. What we will find is that this always leaves disappointment. Just like the sun kept falling and falling and falling into more and more 
painful realities in our own lives, the further and further we move, the further and further we find ourselves. The younger son thought that what he needed was to get away from his father. And yet it is in this failure of the lifestyle he was looking for, it was in that failure he was able to remember something of the goodness of his father's presence, the sufficiency of his father's presence. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? And yet here I sit, perishing with hunger. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to get up. I'm going to arise. I'm going to go to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me instead as one of your hired servants. In desperate hope, the younger son remembers the abundant goodness of his father. His father apparently gave generously to his employees. And so, even in times of need, they had an abundance. In contrast, the younger son's current employer was stingy. The people that he once thought were friends were stingy. No one would give him anything. And for the first time in a long time, he pictured his father's homestead with longing. As he began to formulate a plan, he said, here's what I'm going to do. With honesty, he recognized that his sins were against both God and his father. He would willingly acknowledge that a sonship, a return to sonship, was not an expectation. In a way, he gave up his right to be his son. And he wasn't going to ask for that back. And lastly, with humility, he would ask to be treated like a servant. It's very interesting because the first part of this prayer recognizes something of the grace of his father. He recognized and in hope said, I'm going to acknowledge I done did goofed up here. And I'm going to hope my father takes me back. But one of the common things that he ran into and that we can run into is that we would expect to have to work to earn this favor. He said, treat me like one of your hired servants. He doesn't want his father to give anything to him. He says, that's beyond the question. That's outside of what's reasonable to ask. Instead, I'm going to work to earn my bread, as it were. I'm going to work to earn what I need to live. If this is where we find ourselves this morning, if this is where you find yourself, I would encourage you to look at what comes next. Because the younger son was prepared to earn his father's love, which he carelessly threw away. And in the same way, we might be looking towards God saying, okay, I'm willing to admit that I was wrong. I'm willing to admit my mistakes. And I'm willing to work to do, to do what I need to do to earn back 
favor with God. Yet nothing, nothing could have prepared the younger son for the compassion of the father. The father's heart towards the younger son was characterized by compassion. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and was, um, embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I sinned against heaven and I sinned before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he could say his next apology, the father looked to the people who were his servants and said, quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put on a ring on his finger and put sandals on his feet. And bring in the, uh, the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. And so they began to celebrate. It's easy for me to imagine this was not the first time the father stood on his front porch looking for his son to come home. I can imagine day after day, evening after evening, week after week, month after month, the father taking his stand by the pillar, leaning his arm on the railing, and looking and hoping to see the outline of his son walking down that dusty road. What always surprises me, however, about this story is the extravagance that the father shows in welcoming back his son. In a time when the pricing of clothing was astronomically high, he didn't call for his son to be given the leftover robe. He didn't say, "If eh, grab the first thing that you see. He didn't say, go to the local store, buy something cheap off the rack. He said, bring him the best robe you can find. This in itself was absolutely unbelievable. The son had wasted his entire inheritance that the father saved for him. And yet the first thing he does is gives him clothing so that he could be welcomed into the home. For the father to give the ring and the shoes meant elevating the social status of the son. Very interestingly, the one thing that the son wanted to do was to be treated like a hired worker. The one thing that hired workers and servants had in common was that they did not have shoes. The father was saying, you're not going to be a servant to me. You're going to be restored as my son. And here is how I'm going to show you that. 
And when he called for the fattened calf to be killed, this was a joyous occasion. Very regularly, they did not eat meat like we do today. You could probably eat a little bit of chicken here and there every day. You could go down to the local restaurant, buy a burger. It's very easy to find meat in today's culture. Back then, they only ate meat, either if you were extremely wealthy or for special occasions. To kill the fattened calf was signifying the most important celebration the father could experience in his own life. He showed absolute extravagance in bringing back the, the lost brother. All of this shows, though, that it came at a great cost to the father. In order for him to bring his son back, he took a cost upon himself. In order to clothe him, in order to give him a ring, in order to give him shoes, in order to give him the best meal that he could, the father had to give of himself on behalf of the younger son. Though the younger son showed contempt for the father, though he scorned his father's presence, and though he recklessly spent his father's wealth, the compassion of the father was greater still. This is not just a story for us to look at and have good feelings on the inside. Because what Jesus is doing is revealing something about himself about God for us. I've heard more than one time in my life from people who stopped going to church. If I went back to church, the building would collapse. God would send a lightning bolt, and he always gets his man. You can hear any variation of this. What Jesus is saying is he's asking us to think differently about the heart of God. The first thing that wells up inside of this father is an innate sense of compassion, a deep-seated feeling of mercy for his son. Is it possible that when we come home, when the father sees us coming home, that the first thing welling up inside of him is not anger, is not contempt, but is compassion for our miserable state that we found ourselves in. If you find yourself a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter this morning, this is the message for you. Come home. The Father is filled with compassion. One thing that you would be right in asking, okay, that's very nice, is this true? The entirety of Luke chapter 15, we've only looked at one story. There's two other stories. The entirety of chapter 15 revolves around this joy, this compassion of people finding what was lost. The first story that Jesus told was about a shepherd who lost a sheep. 
And although he had 99 who were with him, his compassion welled up, and he sought desperately for that lost sheep. And when he found that lost sheep, he didn't correct it, he didn't beat it up, he gently set it around his neck, brought it home, and rejoiced. And he compared it also to a widow who had 10 coins that would have been significantly valuable to her. And she lost one, and instead of saying, oh, that happens, she swept the house until she found it. And when she found it, she wasn't angry at it, put it in a little case and say, stay there. She rejoiced at finding it. These stories, and especially the story of this lost son, shows us that the heart of God is compassionate and desires to find that which is lost. Now, if this was a Hallmark movie, the story would have ended here. Because you want to end on a high note and say that tension, that repulsion that may have happened, is finally reversed. And the people who were separated are now together. But this isn't a Hallmark movie because it's not the full story. You see, the story began with Jesus saying there was a man who had two sons. And very interestingly, what we're going to see is that this second son is just as distant from both his father and his brother as the younger son was, but in a very different way. The heart of the older brother was distant because of a self-justification. Jesus continued his story. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And one said to him, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. The older brother did not share the heart of his father. In fact, Luke tells us he was angry and he refused to go in. But the heart of the father had a compassion for him as well. The father went out of the house and entreated him to come inside. But the older brother said, Look, these many years I served you, and I never disobeyed your command, not even one time. And yet you never gave me so much as a little goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Although the older brother didn't leave home like his younger sibling, he was just 
as emotionally distant from his father as his younger brother. Something that struck me as I was reading this week and as I was studying, the younger son always, whether it was in thought, whether it was in speech, or whether it was in rehearsal, always spoke of his dad as father, a term of respect, a term of endearment. No matter how distant he was, he said, my father's servants have enough. I'm going to say to him, my father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But this son, this elder son, this elder brother, was just as distant because he shows no respect for his father. He just gives an angry exclamation. And we know that he was also emotionally distanced from his father because of what he says. These many years I slaved. The Greek word is literally, not just I served you, I slaved for you. He did all the right things, and yet he didn't do them because he loved the father. He did them out of a sense of obligation. And instead of drawing him closer to the father, it drove him further away. Because in his mind, he said, if I work for my father, I should get something from my father. And the grace that the father shows his younger brother absolutely offends him. Because when his younger brother went out, broke all the rules, showed no respect for his father, the father lavishly, extravagantly welcomed him back home. Again, this story is not for us to point fingers, but to look in the mirror. Very frequently, if you've been a part of the church for a long time, it is easy, it is all too easy for us to develop an attitude that looks at people who might be more like a prodigal son and to say that there is, that they're inferior, that we are somehow or another superior that we deserve something more because we're not like them, because we didn't go astray like they did, because we don't live the reckless lifestyle that they did. And just like the younger son learned that he couldn't earn his favor back with God, the older brother shows us that we don't have a right relationship with God because we do the right thing. When we do the right thing, without a love of God in our lives, we run the risk of distancing ourselves from God and from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If this is where we find ourselves today, here's the message that Christ has for us. 
we see the message in the father's heart for the older brother. Gentle reconciliation. I never noticed this before, but when it says the father went out and entreated him, it wasn't that he did it one time. The text actually suggests he did it again and again and again and again and again. Come on inside. Say hello to your brother. Join me in welcoming him back. Celebrate with me. And again and again and again, the elder brother said, no. But the heart of the father towards the elder son is gentle reconciliation. He says, son, you are with me always. And everything I have is yours. It was fitting in this moment to be glad and to celebrate. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now is found. The heart of the father entreated, consoled the older brother. He tries to bring him back into a relationship. He says, son, you are always with me. He, the father doesn't distance himself from the older brother because the older brother distanced himself from the father. Even though the older brother showed disregard for his father, the father showed gentle relational terms with his brother and invites him to celebrate with him. All right. And let's think about where all this started. When Christ gave this parable, he was talking to tax collectors and sinners. Younger brothers. And he was talking to Pharisees and his scribes, older brothers. Both were just as desperately in need of the mercy of God. Both the sinners and the tax collectors needed to realize they needed Christ. And Jesus' message to the Pharisees was, you need God in your lives as well. Just because you look like you're doing the right thing on the outside does not mean what's on the inside is healthy. Finding ourselves in the presence of God, we see a couple of things. We need to recognize our need for the mercy of God. When we think of our lives, if it's been more like a prodigal, uh, like the first lost son, the younger lost son, then our hope is that God will treat us better than what we deserve. We remind ourselves of the sufficiency of the goodness of the presence of our Heavenly Father, and we return to Him. But before we even make it, He runs out and He welcomes us. If we find ourselves more in a uh, moralistic, I've done the right thing, I should be accepted. We 
need the mercy of God. And he himself still goes out and entreats us, come back in. For those of you who might find yourselves to be these older brothers, to be these people who have been Christians for a long time, I want to issue a challenge to you and issue a challenge to me. This season that we celebrate, Easter, is a time when people are more willing to give Christ another chance. The older brother should have gone out to look for the younger brother in this story. The father himself did. The elder brother did not. Christ is challenging us to have this compassion to seek and save that which is lost. So I'm inviting you, I'm challenging you, and I'm challenging myself. Let's look for those on the outside and invite them in. Because when we recognize that we need the mercy of God and that these people need the mercy of God as well, there is no repelling tension like sticking a North Pole magnet to a North Pole magnet or a South Pole magnet to a South Pole magnet. It becomes something much gentler because we realize we are not made right through what we do. Both you and I and the people on the outside are made right because of what God does for us. Generously and abundantly giving from himself to satisfy our needs. Let's pray together. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your compassionate heart. We thank you that in your great mercy, uh, you don't leave us on the outside, but you make a way for us to come in. I do pray that as we um, come closer to this Easter season, that we would be reminded of just who you are and what you're like. I pray that we would remember that we're not saved because we do the right thing. We don't um, we don't earn our way to you. We can't uh, be good enough for you. But that in your goodness and in your mercy, you make us right with yourself. I pray for myself and I pray for my friends who are here this morning. I pray that we could uh, sense your presence. I pray that we would have that desperate desire to find your lost kids. And I pray that in everything, Christ would be glorified this season and forevermore. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.